0: Nicodemus is a well-known character in John's Gospel. He comes to Jesus at night. He has a lot of questions, and he often doesn't seem to follow the conversation very well. But I think Nicodemus has been completely misunderstood. Who exactly is this mysterious man? There's a lot to rethink in this week's episode, and I invite you to join me outside the box. episode five, The Curious Case of Nick at Night, part one. Well, we've been marching our way through the Gospel of John, and it's been a a slow march so far, and we're about to slow down even more. (laughs) I intend to take three episodes and talk about John chapter three, and we won't do four for chapter four, but in chapter three, this may be one of the more complicated chapters in the entirety of the New Testament. I mean, not just theologically what's going on, but also uh, tradition brings some assumptions to the table, and I'm not sure all the assumptions are warranted. So we're just going to unpack some of those things uh, over three different episodes, and today we're just going to be looking at the first 13 verses of John chapter 3, and specifically focusing on this character of Nicodemus. For today's episode, I'm going to be referencing uh, a couple different journal articles out of Bibliotheca Sacra. It's a theological journal, and we're going to go way back in time uh, to 1978. Um, I usually like to include 80s references in when I teach, uh, and we've missed it by a couple years here. But back in 1978, there's an author, a theologian, Bible teacher by the name of Zane Hodges, and he wrote three different articles regarding problem passages in the book of John. And we're going to be referencing two of those, uh, one just minimally, the other one more extensively. Uh, Zane Hodges uh, is American pastor, as I said, seminary professor, Bible scholar, died uh, in November of 2008. Hodges tackles three different problem passages here at the beginning of the book of John the first one, Grace After Grace, is the title, and it's focused on John one we We're not going to be referencing that particular article in the series uh, today at all. The second article was called Untrustworthy Believers, and it's focusing on John 2.23-25. through 25. We'll start with that one, and that'll be just our, our lead-in to the third article, which we'll spend a little bit more time And that one's called Water and Spirit, John 3, 5. So as we begin to talk about Nicodemus, the person, uh, he shows up first in John, in chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. We also know that Nicodemus doesn't just show up in John chapter 3. He also is in John chapter 7 and John chapter 19. He shows up a couple different places later in John's gospel. So we know a little bit more about him later, but here he's just this brand new character coming unto the gospel. There's a few things that the text tells us that I think we've passed over in our understanding of who this character is. And it begins at the end of chapter 2, actually. There's a few statements that tie into the beginning of John chapter 3. So I'll just start by reading the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, that's speaking of Jesus, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And then in verse 25, that word man comes up two more times. He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then we slip into chapter three, which the modern way that we read and study the Bible is chapter by chapter, which is incredibly unfortunate in this case because the chapter headings weren't there in the original. And John was tying that last verse in our chapter two with the first verse in our chapter three as a continuation of the statement and thought. And unfortunately, we haven't connected those two. There were men in Jerusalem that came to believe in Jesus, that Jesus was not entrusting himself to because he knew what was in man. He knew that men, not all men were trustworthy for various reasons. And the commentaries like to go to a definition of what true faith is on this. And I think we can back away from that a little bit and just read it for what it is. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, Often, the way we've been taught to view Nicodemus is as an unbeliever coming in. But I think from the linguistic tie, and so does Zane Hodges, by the way. This is the second article that I was referencing earlier. Zane Hodges believes that just because it's the majority view of people that think that Nicodemus isn't a believer, that isn't necessarily a correct reflection of what the text is telling us. From the beginning of his article, During the first Passover of the Lord's ministry, it is reported by the Apostle John that in response to his miracles, many believed in his name, referencing John 2.23 there that we just read. However, it is also reported that Jesus did not commit himself to these new believers due to the supernatural insight into men which he always possessed, John 2.24 and 25. Hodges says an overwhelming number of commentators in the Gospel of John have drawn the conclusion that the individuals referred to in this passage were in fact not genuinely converted, but rather that they exercised a superficial and inadequate faith based on signs. And in the next paragraph, he goes on to say, there are substantial grounds on which this conclusion can be called into question. You know, the people referred to at the end of chapter two, we shouldn't be questioning their conversion or their faith as not true faith, that there's not substantial evidence in the text to come to that conclusion. And this is important because of the tie to chapter three, verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. There's a linguistic tie there to the word man from the previous three verses And we are to understand Nicodemus as one of those men who had come to faith in Jesus based on the signs that he saw, but also that Jesus was not necessarily entrusting himself to Nicodemus. Well, why is that? Because things were complicated. Nicodemus, who was he? He was a man of the Pharisees. He found himself a man of faith in the most spiritually degenerate city of all time. But not only that, He was a member of the Pharisees, a group of overly religious, self-promoting, power-hungry fanatics that were in a position of religious authority in the land. And the other two times that John brings Nicodemus back into his gospel in chapter 7, verses 48 through 52 and 19, 38 through 39, we see that it remained complicated for Nicodemus. His membership in this group of Pharisees by and large, unbelieving Pharisees. There were bits and pieces and pockets within the group of faithful people. And Nicodemus, that's how we're supposed to understand Nicodemus. He is a man of faith. It's not just that linguistic tie, but it's more than that. And that's why we're spending three episodes in John chapter 3, and two of those are going to be on this character of Nicodemus, because we're going to examine exactly what Jesus says, what John uses to describe his encounter With Nicodemus. So there's another assumption just in the next verse, chapter 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a good teacher. Now, for those of you that have always seen Nicodemus as an unbeliever in this passage, I want you to suspend that thought just for a second. Come outside that box with me. And I want you just, uh, whether it's true or not, I would just want you to suppose that it is true that Nicodemus is a believer. Because we can read his questions completely differently than maybe we've been taught to read them. This question in verse 2 is a great example. Rabbi. A lot of people say he uses Rabbi because he just sees Jesus as a teacher. He doesn't see him as the fulfillment of God on earth. Well, of course he doesn't see him as the fulfillment of God on earth. That theology comes so much later, (laughs) And John is writing this well after the fact that Jesus has actually risen from the dead and he's still telling the story the way he's choosing to tell it. I think the idea that he calls this man rabbi, Nicodemus is going out there on a limb because the Pharisees are not even willing to admit that he is from God. We see that later in other texts. But here he says, Rabbi, we know, and that's a plural we, there are some in my group that know that you have... Some special abilities here. We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So, who's the we? Is that the whole Pharisee group? It can't be the whole Pharisee group. When they go out to John the Baptist in the wilderness, they question everything. They question Jesus. They say he can't be from God. They say he's from the devil. So, the we there, and this is outside the box. The we there is Nicodemus saying there are some of us in this group of Pharisees or maybe some of us who have seen the signs that you performed here in Jerusalem and have come to believe in you that no, you are from God. You've come as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And that reading makes the most sense of all. It was very complicated for Nicodemus. He was picking his actions wisely. And this whole statement is said at nighttime. The text brings that out. The fact that Nicodemus comes at nighttime, it's not meant to mean he is somehow a timid character. That's often how he's portrayed. The fact that he came to Jesus at all was an act of faith. He had everything to lose from this encounter with Jesus. He was picking his actions wisely. He was calculated in not only how he was going to survive his situation, but also be a witness in his situation. His situation was like many people today who profess faith in Jesus, yet they find themselves attached to institutions that are not so like-minded. This conversation will give us a glimpse into the tense situation that existed for Nick in Jerusalem. The darkness plays into the author's light-dark theme and his motif, and it implicated Nick into that struggle. Nicodemus is a man in A dark situation that comes to the light. And what we will come to find is that Jesus, through his entire conversation with Nicodemus, does not tell him that he should leave the unbelieving group that he's a part of. And I think this is key for today. It's this view of Nicodemus that can encourage us today, because we too find ourselves in a dark world. We are not called to remove ourselves from the dark places just to walk in the light in those dark places. And that's the light that God offers all believers. So as we look at Nicodemus, let's come with the assumption that he is a believer in a tough situation and some of us find ourselves as believers in tough situations as well. And we can learn from him in that way. So in verse 3... Jesus said, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And this is just uh, highlighting the fact that Nicodemus has misunderstood Jesus a little. The born again can also be born above, but Nicodemus went with the born again idea, which is Even hard to understand, because in our culture, born again is synonymous with born from above. We've made it a spiritual understanding. Jesus answered in verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And it's verse 5 that is the subject of the third article that Zane Hodges wrote in his series of three. And we're beginning to focus on that article in a little more detail. And it's the focus of water and spirit here. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I'm going to go out on a limb right now and just guess that there are some who were taught that when it says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, that you've either heard that as, "Oh, that water refers to physical birth, or you may have come to understand that water is referring to baptism, unless you're Baptized in water and born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. This idea of water baptism being spoken of in this verse is still being perpetuated out there, and yet it's been settled in academia since at least 1978, (laughs) and before then even. But um, Hodges, that's the one thing that Hodges is going to argue, and most commentaries fall in the same place. The other thing I need to point out That may not be obvious to you as an English reader is that the word spirit here, it's used once in verse 5, it's used twice in verse 6, and it's actually used twice again in verse 8. The Greek word for spirit, pneuma, is the exact same word that also can be translated as wind. The unique thing about that is the exact same thing is true in the Hebrew language. There's only one word, and depending on the context, it can be translated in a number of different ways, which is unique. We don't have that in English. We have spirit and we have wind, two separate words for those ideas. So when the translators come to the Old and New Testament, Hebrew and Greek translators, they have a decision to make when they come across this word in the old testament and in the new testament and they have to go to the context to determine how to bring it into the english whether they use our word for wind or our word for spirit and it's based on that idea that hodges is going to argue that it was mistranslated in verse five and so what he's going to argue is unless one is born of water and wind he cannot enter the kingdom of god and he's going to argue that water and wind are metaphors for being born from above in the Old Testament. And we'll we'll look into that. His conclusion from this is going to be that we're not talking about two different births, born of water and the Spirit, as two separate things. Both of these things, born of water and wind, should be understood as one birth. And that birth is born from above. It's caused by God himself. So let's just jump in to the article. This again is called Water and Spirit, John 3, 5, Problem Passages in the Gospel of John, Part 3 by Zane Hodges. He said, The commentary tradition on the fourth gospel is deeply divided as to whether or not this contains a reference to baptism, and strong opinions have been held on both sides of the question. A little bit later, he says, Any misunderstanding of the Lord's words can lead to a misunderstanding of one of the most basic conceptions in Christianity the Doctrine of New Birth. He spends some time in the first part of his journal article just talking about how John interacts with sacraments, baptism being a sacrament. And interestingly enough, the Lord's Supper, although there's lots of time in the Gospel of John spent in the upper room, the Lord's Supper is not included. So he spends some time in his article just reflecting on John's interaction with the sacraments because if this reference here in John 3, 5 is supposed to be talking about water baptism, then he had ample opportunity to make that more clear, and he didn't, is the argument. And he says, nothing requires that in John 3, 5 the words born of water should imply baptism unless the expositor is already committed to a sacramental orientation to Christian experience. So in layman's terms unless you've been taught to read the passage that way, there's nothing really there that would suggest that you should read it that way. We're not talking about water baptism in John 3, 5. That's not what the water is. So if it's not, what is the author talking about here? What is Jesus saying? Well, Hodges comes to the conclusion that the word water in John 3, 5 must surely have something to do with the heavenly and spiritual nature of the rebirth under discussion. As a starting point, it may appropriately be asked whether the term water is linked elsewhere in the fourth gospel with the theme of eternal life or of the Holy Spirit. And the answer, of course, is well known. He says, in the very next chapter, water is the prominent symbol employed in the discourse with the Samaritan woman. That's in chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. And there, it seems plainly to stand for eternal life itself. Additionally, water appears again in close connection with the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, as this is presented in John 7, 37-39. In the latter passage, it would be hard to distinguish it from the Spirit himself, since the outflow from the believer's inner life is scarcely anything other than the outflow of the Spirit, whom the believer is assured of receiving. So to read water in John 3, 5, and come to the understanding that it's talking about baptism— is ignoring the rest of the gospel's use of water, where the water is intimately tied to the work of the Holy Spirit. Hodges says, It is strange that more attention has not been given to how the phrase of water and of the Spirit would have been construed by Nicodemus when it first fell on his ears. The phraseology of water and of the Spirit is so thoroughly fixed in the tradition of both the ancient and modern versions of John 3, 5, that practically no one ever calls the correctness of this familiar translation into question. Hodges asserts, yet verse 8 shows plainly that the word pneuma can be rendered in two ways, either wind or spirit. The question then is how ought it be rendered in verse 5. Verse 8 is the verse where pneuma is used twice, but in our English translations, the translators have brought it in as two different words, once as wind and once as spirit. So let's just read that. The wind blows, that's the pneuma. The pneuma blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the numa. That's how verse 8 reads. And we've brought it into English as the wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. But it's the exact same word. And Hodge's argument is, if pneuma can mean wind at the beginning of verse 8 and spirit clearly at the end of verse 8, why can't we go back to verse 5? And instead of reading that, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He argues that it likely should be, unless one is born of water and wind, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And to argue his point, he goes back and looks at a couple different passages in the Old Testament. It's this water and wind combination that we see in the Old Testament. And he goes back to Isaiah 44, verses 3 through 5, which brings in the water part of this work of the Holy spirit that reads for, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Do you see the imagery there of water being equated with the work of the spirit? So Hodges says we can do that for water. We can also do that for wind and those of you that are familiar with your Old Testament might have some imagery coming to mind, but specifically in Ezekiel's famous vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones, quoting out of Ezekiel 37, 9 and 10. Then he said unto me, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Hodges says, if you go back into the Old Testament, an Old Testament that Nicodemus would have been highly familiar with as a Pharisee. The imagery of water and wind is used throughout the Old Testament as elements of that come to symbolize the work of the Holy Spirit and God's hand on people's lives, bringing them from a state of death into life. And his argument is, John chapter 3, verse 5, would make complete sense to Nicodemus, understood as, unless one is born of water and the wind, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's arguing that Nicodemus should have been able to put that together and yet he misunderstood what Jesus was saying. And Nicodemus's confusion comes out in verse 9, when Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? We're going to unpack a little bit more of the conversation in the next episode. But let's skip down to verse 13, because the answer to how we're to understand this is wrapped up very nicely in verse 13. Verse 13 reads, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And you're sitting there thinking to yourselves, what? How does that tie everything together? But I guarantee you in Nicodemus' head, someone that knew his Old Testament well, things are becoming more clear as Jesus continues to talk to him about the work of the water and the wind, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you use your cross-references very much, but there's a cross-reference in most Bibles to Proverbs 30, because in this proverb, we have a riddle. Let me just read to you the riddle and see if it sounds somewhat familiar. Verse 4 of Proverbs 30. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Already sounds familiar, doesn't it? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Oh, that's interesting. There's a reference to wind. Wouldn't it be interesting if there was also a reference to water in this riddle? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. That's the riddle. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Jesus answers that. It's the son of man. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? I don't know if you've ever tried to gather wind in your fist. It's really hard to do, but somebody has. Who is that that controls the wind? and knows where it blows, and how it blows. Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? We're going to go on a river float tomorrow, and my garments will get wet, but I will not be able to wrap the waters in my garments. But somebody can. Who has established all the ends of the earth, where those waters flow and those winds blow? What is his name or his son's name? Let's just slip back into John chapter 3, verse 13. This statement, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven... The son of Man. And in Nicodemus' mind, he's going back to the riddle in Proverbs 30, and he knows that it talks about water, and that it talks about wind, and he knows the answer now is the Son of Man. And he is beginning to connect with the person standing right before him, a person that he knows is sent from God, that he wants to call and refer to as a teacher. And now he has a new title for him, the Son of Man. And Jesus is the answer to the riddle i'd like to remind you that at rethinkingscripture.com there's a complete study of the book of john available and ready for use it has lessons for each chapter there's video of my teaching and audio to listen to There's even follow-up commentary that you can read if you're not done, when you're all done. Everything on the website is free, so make your way over there and make good use of that if you would. Well, that's it for today's episode, but in the next episode, we're going to stick with this Nicodemus character, and we're going to look more at the conversation that he has with Jesus and a few hidden clues that are way outside the box, things you've never considered. So I invite you back to The Curious Case of Nick at Night.